Hello, and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Chad Hayfley. I do user experience work on the web and in academic libraries. And I'm Brandon Carper, a training designer. And today we're going to pick up a thread we dropped a couple weeks back after our series on Papers, Please, where we talked a lot about uh, player choice and how it was executed there. We're going to dive into Bioshock. Before we get there, Brandon, does your job involve any user testing and feedback and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I've done it in the past. I forget which book I based it on, but I I did the thing where you kind of do a video of someone using a site and track the things that they try to do. You give them a small task, right, and you see where they click first, and you adjust your site based on that feedback. Yeah, basic usability testing kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, does it play a role in your current organization, even if you're not directly involved in it? Uh, not so much in my particular department. We did some user testing on the initial templates that we that we currently use, but after we got those hammered out, we kind of just uh, run with them. Yeah, it's a fascinating area to to dive into. And I, today, I want to kind of combine thinking about user testing and feedback and usability testing and all that stuff with looking at how that worked or didn't work for the uh, Bioshock game. So looking at a game that was lauded for its choice of morality uh, and player choice and agency and talk about how they ended up there and maybe how it didn't quite um, work out in retrospect. So I'll say up front, there's going to be a lot of spoilers here. Uh, Bioshock came out in 2007, (laughs) I think, which puts us at its, what, ninth anniversary, more or less, so... You've had we'll a... just put that in our, our podcast intro, a show about real <laughs> games and spoilers. <laughs> Sold. So that was 07. There was a sequel a couple years later. Did you play that one? No, I never played 2. I have it on my Steam library. I think I but... do too. It was done by a different studio after the success of the first one. and I've heard it's actually pretty decent, but just different than the, the mm. first one. And then more recently, there was Bioshock Infinite, uh, a kind of sequel that We'll get into more later, and that was 2013, I think. Uh, so we'll have spoilers for at least Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite. Probably not Bioshock 2, since neither of us have played it, <laughs> unless we <laughs> happen to hit on something completely accidentally. But the original Bioshock, back in 07, still has a 96 on Metacritic, the aggregation of all the reviews that it had, which puts it in the top 25 games of all time. And I know Metacritic has its faults, and you know it may weight recent games more than classic games just because of the, the breadth of reviews that are out there for them, but I still think that's an achievement to be in the top 25 games of all time, even nine years later. The kind of One of the reasons Bioshock rose to the prominence it did, I think, was it, it's one of the few big games like that that had kind of an auteur personality behind it in Ken Levine, or Ken Levine. I went to research how to pronounce his name. I'll just call him Ken, because... We're, we're good buddies. And he was the driving creative force behind it, and seems like a a strong personality and had a lot to say. So there's been a lot of interesting stuff to read on it. Back- oh, really? I didn't, I didn't know that was the, the case. Yeah, he... So Bioshock was a spiritual successor to an older game he worked on called System Shock and System Shock oh, 2, okay. which I have not played and don't know as much about. I tried to play System Shock 2, but it was too old. <laughs> <laughs> its time has passed, perhaps. When was it? Do you know? Like, what, what era does that date from? Oh, I I couldn't say. Uh-huh. Graphics remind me of, like, Wolfenstein or... Okay. Back in Doom the day, games. When, we, yeah. when we were young ones. 
The basic story of Bioshock is, could sum it up as an underwater Randian nightmare, I guess, kind of. You open the game in a plane crash, you discover a lighthouse in the middle of the ocean. The lighthouse has a giant elevator in it that takes you down into the ruins of an underwater city that seems to have been an attempt at living out, uh, I don't know, this is where my philosophical knowledge falls apart, but is objectivist the right word to use? Objectivism, yes. Yes, hooray for me. I got it. Of <laughs> uh, That kind of objectivism of every man should rise according to his skill, and that should be the sole determiner of your lot in life and all that kind of stuff. But it all fell apart, and you arrive in the city after everything has fallen apart, and everyone has become mutated monsters, as they do. There's a deep lesson there. And as you journey through the game, uh, you have a guy that talks to you over the radio named is it Atlas. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. who kind of helps you navigate around and tells you what your goals are and that kind of stuff. And one of the main mechanics through the game comes with these characters. They're young girls, like elementary school age girls, that are known as little sisters. And it turns out that in this underwater city, one of the reasons it fell apart was that everyone discovered superpowers and started jacking themselves up with them. And in, in the fiction of the game, the superpowers come from a substance produced by an underwater sea slug, as as they do. And for some reason, someone determined that if you injected this sea slug into orphans, they would produce more of the substance that you need for superpowers. And spelling it out this way, it sounds even more especially ridiculous, <laughs> such as the setting for the game. So everything has fallen apart as people got all these superpowers and went mad with power, blah, 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 etc. And the little sisters have protectors known as big daddies, which are... Uh, men in essentially old-timey diving suits with giant drills attached to their hands, and they're kind of terrifying and really hard to fight. Old-timey diving suit man doesn't sound nearly as intimidating. <laughs> You're right, it doesn't. <laughs> concept art might be key in getting this concept approved. Although I read that at one point early in the process, they were men in wheelchairs, and I don't know quite what? how that would have played out. It was just like a throwaway comment in an interview that I saw was that early in the process, the big daddies were men in wheelchairs. So huh. I guess they got scarier. But they make like whale noises and anyway, yeah. they're kind of suitably terrifying given the environment of the game. But as you find these little sisters and you start to develop the urge for superpowers yourself, you have a choice every time you run across one. You can set them free by removing the sea slug from them. And then you gain a little bit of what's called Atom, the substance that's used to build upon your superpowers and unlock new abilities. Or you can, I believe the term the game uses is harvest them, which involves killing the little sister for more of the Atom that you can get out of her. And that was heavily marketed as the big kind of moral choice throughout the game. You encounter, oh, I meant to look it up, something like maybe 20, 25 little sisters throughout the game. And so you've got to make that choice every time. You come upon one, it might be more than that. But it, it's a repeated situation that you run into. How did you play the game? If you I did not kill little girls, Chad. <laughs> not even once? <laughs> no. You were not tempted? I, I did a little girl kill free play. <laughs> <laughs> so you got the good ending. Yeah, I, I always... I'm always a dork and go for good endings in games, I think. You're the lawful player. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And... Mechanics-wise, if you harvested a little sister, you gained 160 units of Atom, which would then you could use to buy and unlock things. If you um, saved the little sister, you would only get 80 units of Atom. So in theory, you are now cutting your uh, budget in half 
of resources that you have to work with and unlock new abilities as you go through the game by choosing the, the lawful good path as you progress through. But, plot twist, for every three little sisters that you save, they randomly give you 200 at them. So, if you do take that path all the way through and save a bunch of the little sisters, uh, you end up really something like only 10% down over the course of the game in the amount of resources that you gather. Yeah, and in my experience, it did not have a big impact no. on my game. Like, really... by the end of the game, I just had more superpowers, and I really knew what to do with, anyway. Yeah, exactly. No matter which choice you've made, pretty much, and I'll, I'll come back to that. And then there's this big plot twist about halfway through, where it's revealed that Atlas, the guy who's been feeding you directions to take, has been mind-controlling you, and that every time he uses the phrase, would you kindly, you know, say, would you kindly go open that door, or would you kindly fetch this thing for me, um, that you, your character has been conditioned to respond and it kind of goes into this weird questioning meta-narrative of the game of, like, why do you do things in games just because you're told to? And are you mind-controlled? And it tried to make a statement, which I give it credit for, because not a lot of games have even tried to um, comment on that kind of stuff. But it's the kind of twist I think that can only really happen in one game ever. And then it's sort of sort of played out. So it tried very hard to be about the nature of games and the choices you make within them. So on one hand, you're being told you're mind-controlled and doing whatever you're told to do, and on the other hand, you, in theory, at least have this choice about harvesting or saving the Little Sisters and getting the resources as you go through. And it made me think about a, a slightly more recent game. Have you, by any chance, played Spec Ops The Line? I have not. It's actually worth checking out, especially because it's probably only like $6 on Steam at this point. It's a um, third-person military shooter that at first glance looks fairly generic, but it also tries to make some some commentary on why do you do the things you do in games and why wouldn't mowing down hundreds of people in your average shooter game have psychological consequences for the character. And it, I'm not sure it's entirely successful in critiquing these things, but again, it at least attempts to. And at one point, you commit this horrific act in the game, and the developers went on the record saying, well, you know, you did have a choice of whether or not to correct that, commit that act. You could have decided not to play the game. Which, That's obnoxious. Yes, I think it's a cop out. <laughs> I'm sorry. And you know, I instantly think of war games and Matthew Broderick, and the only way to win is not to play, except that that made sense and this doesn't. That reminds me of Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. You played the Metal Gear games, Chad? I played the first Metal Gear Solid and pieces of some of the later ones. Yeah. So if you're not familiar, it's you play a special agent basically in this really screwed up tom clancy novel i don't know i haven't ever actually read a tom clancy novel i shouldn't say that well your your it's... impression of what a tom clancy novel would be like right <laughs> i guess so like a political thriller with then uh, there's some sci-fi stuff in there anyway the the characters and all their downtime just spend like literally hours of cutscenes moping about how war is awful and they hate killing people and then they finish that up and you go right to the next scene where you kill a bunch more people and then you complain about how life is killing and war is awful and then you go do it some more and yeah. it just annoys the heck out of me anyway the please game, continue <laughs> the gameplay doesn't seem to match with the narrative and the reason this is on my mind now you know nine years later is that at, at the time bioshock i think really i mean Based on the 96 it's got on Metacritic, it was lauded as like one of the most perfect games ever created. And only more recently, I think, has time let people take a little bit of perspective on it and maybe where it wasn't quite as successful as 
um, people thought it might have been at the time and how it tackled some of these topics. There was, I'm still not sure why this happened, but I think last week or a couple of weeks ago, there was an interview in Rolling Stone with Ken Levine about his history working with the Bioshock franchise, and I don't know why that happened now at all, especially because he's disbanded the company at this point. Well, they're re-releasing the Bioshock games as an HD remaster. Oh, yeah. I suppose that does make sense timing-wise. But I don't think they expressly said that in the interview, which was hmm. odd. But anyway. Well, then I got nothing. Yeah. Well, there were some questions in the interview about that um, moral choice you had to make between saving or harvesting the Little Sisters. And in the interview, um, Ken Levine talked about his debate he had with the publisher at the time, which was, should harvesting have a major impact on access to upgrades? So he his original idea was that by saving the Little Sisters, by making that good moral choice, the game would become much more difficult for you. And there would be more than just that 10% difference in resources that you had available, that it would, you would be much more minimalistic in the abilities that you had and the things you had access to. And, but the quote from the interview was, the conventional wisdom was on their side. It was not like I could say to them, oh, you're absolutely wrong, here are 15 examples. And the conventional wisdom being that you don't want to make things harder for the player based on a choice that they make in the game. Which seems odd to me, because isn't that just a difficulty level setting more than <laughs> anything else, but kind of like built into the narrative? Yeah, well, I've never seen a difficulty level setting, so... <laughs> Not once. <laughs> uh, and they had no data on this, so you know, he said he couldn't go to them and say, here's examples of why this would be a good idea to do in the game. And they had no time to get it, because it sounded like this was pretty late in the development process. What they did have time for was a quick focus group where everybody hated the game after, <laughs> after playing it. And the, the quote from the interview was something along the lines of, the guy running the focus group clapped Ken Levine on the back and said, well, I'm sorry, your game's going to be a failure. <laughs> the end coming out of it. And Why? I don't know. Like they, And they made some changes after that. Like People said the game was too dark, so they lightened, like they couldn't see what they were doing, so they lightened it up a bit. And they added the um, directional arrow that kind of shows you where to go in the game and, and things like that. But small tweaks they made, nothing revolutionary. Maybe that's, that's all it needed. Uh, but all they had time for was that one focus group, and focus groups are kind of a flawed methodology to begin with because you'll get groupthink going, and uh, it's just a weird subset of people in a, a weird environment. Oh, is that heresy, Chad, that you're uttering? <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've never had a positive experience either running or attending a focus group, <laughs> except some of them feed me pizza. I guess that's positive. <laughs> How can that fail to be a positive experience? <laughs> True. And the other contention he had with the publisher was whether there would be one or two endings in the game. And it was interesting to me that he really wanted there to be just one ending, even with the moral choice being difficult or um, or not. And he said he never got to write that ending, so he's not entirely sure what it would have been. So it sounds like fairly early in the process, um, they ended up on the two endings, the good or bad ending. But the only way to get the good ending is to save every single little sister throughout the game. And the interviewer brought up someone someone they know who played through the game and made the choice to harvest the first little sister they ran into and was so horrified by the experience that they then saved everyone after that. So they you know, adjusted the morality as they played, but they still got the bad ending because they'd made that first choice without all of the, the context. So there's really 
no way <laughs> to adjust your morality as you play and or I mean you can adjust it but you won't have any output from it 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 won't in- influence things at all well, I guess from one perspective, it's like saying, well, I only killed one little girl in my life. <laughs> so, but I really regretted it. Lay off. <laughs> I'm cool now. I felt really bad about it. Yeah. No, but, that but may, that, that's, a good, that's a good point that it would have been nice for there to have been a shade of gray in that binary ending situation. Yeah, exactly. There could have been other stuff in between. And when you sell the game as having a central moral choice of are you a good guy or a bad guy in how you go about achieving your objectives and then it turns out there's only the 10 percent difference in resources between the two extremes and you're probably going to get one ending no matter what like again why couldn't this have been a just a difficulty setting in the game if they're legitimately concerned that um that players would be turned off by things becoming harder for them you know they don't have to make that choice and people all the time choose to make things harder for themselves by changing the difficulty setting in a game that just seems like a very odd distinction to draw for me and going back to his comment about not having you know 15 examples that they could throw at the at the publisher to say this could be done correctly like imagine how the game could have turned out differently if they'd had time and the resources to early in the process do user testing or do more of a survey of other games that were out there and to who knows if the publisher even would have responded to a data-driven you know logical argument but it's very possible that if they'd been able to say look we talked to this segment of our player base and they said this wouldn't be a problem for them maybe they could have sold him on the idea of a um an actual difference in gameplay resulting from the choices that you make or a more severe difference anyway and i know very little i should say about how user experience testing and um, other things like that are done in the gaming world but at least in in my work I'm trying to push us more toward doing these things early and often. So we, we try to do usability tests on projects that might happen someday. And I don't know that we're always entirely successful at that, but we try to establish baselines for things so we have that data to refer back to later. And oh, go ahead. Yeah, what this reminds me of in the training world is how... So in, in a perfect universe... Before you do a training project, you'll do what's called a performance needs analysis, where you look at how people are performing on the job, Mm -hmm. and you make sure that training is really... Well, first, you make sure there's actually a problem, because a lot of times there's not a problem, and you don't have to do anything. Yeah. First question you ask is, if we do nothing, what will be the problem? Mm -hmm. Um, Then, so you make sure there's a problem, you make sure that uh, training is the cause or is going to be the solution to the problem, and then you need to take a baseline of what their performance is in advance. You do the training, then you're supposed to take a measurement afterward at, you know, various intervals. Uh, You know, there's a test, that's one measure, you measure how they're doing on the job. A few months later, that's another measure, you measure how they're affecting business metrics, and you compare that performance at the very end of the process to the performance you measured at the beginning of the process. But no one ever has patience to do yeah. any of that. That's the ideal. Right? Yep. That, that's that's the ideal. And usually you just you know get, get the training out and delivered, and you make some good guesses about what the cause is of the problem and the degree of the problem, and you put together some anecdotes to show that your training had an effect, and that's usually the best you can do before you're shuffled off to something else. Yeah. And I try to cut them some slack for for this a little bit in that 
I think working on a game is less equivalent to working in a continuous organization sometimes, especially with the first Bioshock where it was a company that hadn't existed previously. They were you know, a very small studio with people who didn't have a lot of experience, so they didn't have a history of users that they could draw on for that kind of thing, and that maybe that's something that only becomes available with time. But I, I still really would have liked to see this alternate version of Bioshock where the choices had more of an impact in gameplay. Yeah, but... I mean, when I, when I played Bioshock when it first came out, I had a really great time with it. You know, it was a very cinematic experience. The fact that it was addressing, like you said, Randian philosophy was something totally new for me in mm-hmm. a game to address any type of <laughs> philosophy coherently. Yeah, it, it felt grown up compared to a lot else at the time. Right. And I think you got to that part in the game where you hear about the owners of the underwater city taxing people on how much air they breathe which was yeah just one of the most scathing satires i've ever heard of yep. <laughs> that, that mode of thinking but i even if they had developed the little sister thing it doesn't even seem to me to be really in the right ballpark in hindsight as far as weighty moral choices go mm-hmm. because like in no one's life well in very few people's lives do you have to make a choice between killing a little girl and getting superpowers <laughs> true it is kind of extremes yeah right and i mean in training we talk about transfer a lot which is how likely what you do in the training is to transfer to what you do on the job and the way you make that transfer happen is you make things as similar as possible to what's going to happen on the job mm-hmm. so like what what choice were they expecting this little sister dilemma to to transfer to like what what did they want me as a person to do differently or even think about doing differently you know Mm -hmm. like i feel i feel it probably had something to do with the uh philosophy of every man for himself and how that's bad but it was just so you know so tenuously connected to to real life that i didn't seem to have much of an impact yeah, and I think this would tie in nicely to our discussion of Papers, Please, a few weeks back, where I think we talked about how that game excels at having more of those gray areas in the choices that you make. That, again, even if we're not all Border Patrol agents uh, with direct transferability from those skills, there's still, it's less binary. Right. And even if, you know, you don't have those choices as a border control agent, I feel like the transfer is you, you know, there are border control agents and illegal immigrants in, you know, the real world. Mm -hmm. And there's thinking that everyone has on those groups of people and the game affects that a bit. But, you know, in the real world, you know, we don't have a whole lot of people, like I said, making choices about little girls and superpowers that way. But from from the game world perspective, do you think it would have been more meaningful to choose the good path if you knew that the bad path would provide other benefits? I I guess. Um, but we, you know, back when we were talking about papers, please, we talked about some of the choices in, in Mass Effect and uh, Knights of the Old Republic, the Star Wars game, mm-hmm. right? Where there were, there were clear good choices and there were clear bad choices. And the only reason you picked one or the other was so that you could you know, get good guy powers or bad guy powers. I guess the choice could be more interesting if the bad guy powers were not as cool as the good guy powers, but 
I mean, it, it, I think it makes it more interesting in a theoretical sense, but I don't know really what it buys you from a, an impact after the you know the game is over. That's true. Maybe the consequences are more would be more um, confined to the game itself rather than transferable elsewhere. So I was reading an article recently in the Computers and Human Behavior Journal titled "The Effect of a Persuasive Social Impact Game on Effective Learning and Attitude." I don't know how you librarians stand at reading these <laughs> exciting titles no of secret. articles. We don't read them. We just show them to other people who need them. <laughs> <laughs> we help people find things. <laughs> don't read them ourselves. Uh, that article talked about three things that contribute to a game's persuasiveness. One is immersion, which I feel Bioshock had yeah, in definitely. Spades where you feel like you're in the particular environment that the game is, is set in. The other one is uh, flow, which I think we talked about in a previous episode, which is making things just hard enough, not too hard, not mm-hmm. too easy, and increasing that in a nice, gradual way. And then the other one I had to do some further research on because the term made no sense to me at the beginning. It was <laughs> called procedural rhetoric. <laughs> uh, so rhetoric being a method of persuasion. And basically it means that video games can persuade you by the procedures that it makes you go through in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this idea comes from another book called Persuasive Games, The Expressive Power of Video Games by Ian Bogost. So he gives a good example of this uh, from something called the McDonald's video game, where the creators wanted to impress upon you the... Uh, evils of the mcdonald's corporation basically i guess supersize me only in video game form i'm guessing this was not an officially licensed mcdonald's product probably not uh anyway in this game you had to engage in questionable practices like do you turn diseased cattle into burgers do you bribe health officers do you bulldoze rain rainforests and you had to do these things to succeed as a fast food company so the game by putting you through this process where you have to do bad things to succeed as a fast food restaurant that's how it tries to persuade you that the fast food industry is fundamentally flawed mm, right okay uh so that the, there the game mechanics and the theme and the point it's trying to get across are all tied together i think you can use procedural rhetoric in a way that maybe is not so much of a club over the head yeah yeah uh a bad example that the book gives is uh, a game called Crazy World, which was meant to discourage smoking. Oh, I can tell right off the bat that that was a hit. Yeah, you have to avoid, quote, green puffs of radioactive smoke. Okay. Uh, and by avoiding those puffs of smoke, that was meant to discourage you from taking up cigarettes, I guess. Yeah. And, I mean, that. Uh, to me, Bioshock was more on the, that crazy world end of the spectrum. I can see your point. So I don't feel like I made any choices in Bioshock that had to deal with Randy and, you know, economics or self-interest mm-hmm. or or anything like that. You know, I, I don't feel like I had any real uh, realistic choices of preserving myself over preserving other people except for the, you know, blatantly obvious do you kill a little girl or not you yeah. know if it had been if it had been something that was a much less obvious sin mm-hmm. right 
I feel like that would have been, you know, a more powerful persuasive mechanism. Something you could relate to more. Right, not what ended up, I think, in the game. What do do you think, Chad? Am I totally off base? No, I think you're pulling me in your direction. Quite Mm. quite a bit on this. Um, So by the time Bioshock Infinite came around, what was it, six years or so after the original Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite explores some similar themes, but is set in what early 20th century. Uh, but in, instead of an underwater city, it's a city floating in the clouds and kind of looks at the um, not-so-nice underbelly, or maybe not-so-underbelly of America at the time, and racism and uh, other such classism and, and things like that. It's basically a flying city of racists. Yeah, yeah. It's a great place <laughs> to visit. I don't know what could possibly go wrong with it. Uh, and I, by the time that game came around, I'd really hoped that, since it was made by Ken Levine again, by the same studio, that I hoped they had learned from Bioshock and would be producing a more kind of subtle experience. Because, you know, let's give them the benefit of a doubt. So they didn't have time for that user testing for, you know, being able to figure out how things would actually play out with real people, whether that black versus white distinction was enough for them in the original Bioshock. Surely by now, six years later, they had a player base that they could test these things with and, and do a better job of it. And one of the first things you're presented with in Bioshock Infinite is you see a um, an interracial couple dragged before a crowd, and everyone like starts to stone them essentially with baseballs. It's a real subtle introduction into the game's world. And you, as a player, it looks like you're going to be as a character. You're given a choice as to whether to throw your baseball at the couple or at the guy who's running the raffle to determine who gets to throw the baseball. So here's a choice, which again is very black and white. Like it's very, you know, do am I a racist or do I hit the racist? And there's not a lot of middle ground in there. But you're not even allowed to make the choice because as soon as you start to throw the baseball at one or the other, something interrupts you in the game. And it goes off in a whole other direction. And I kind of, it made me wonder, like, what's the point of even allowing the choice? And did they learn any lessons from in the previous Bioshock. That was, it's fairly early in the game, and that was the point where it started to lose me already. Were there any choices at all in Bioshock Infinite, now that I think about it? Um... Like, really, at all? You could choose which weapons to use? Well, yeah. (laughs) No, I don't think there really were. I think you choose, like, what jewelry to give your lady friend. Or there's at one point, um, you're asked to call a coin flip, and you can call it, but you're wrong every time, no matter which option you pick. And oh, well, now I'm thinking of the ending, and it was, is the answer to all this, well, because you can make all the choices, but they all lead to the same ending. Yeah, it kind of lost me. Is that what the ending was about? I think so. I kind of stopped understanding it. After I didn't it. like the ending. I did not either. <laughs> I agree on that point. Um. But Bioshock Infinite had this thing called 1999 mode. Did you play that at all? Wasn't it like ultra hard mode or something? That's what it turned into. But by reading some of these interviews and the press they put out at the time, it was originally intended to be something fairly different. Uh, In the announcement of it, Ken Levine is quoted as, it occurred to me in a revelation what was missing in Bioshock 1, the sense of permanence. And so they really wanted to put permanence into the game, that your choices would actually impact the gameplay so originally it was going to be more of a classed mode where you would specialize in something like snipers or you know or close-up combat or etc and you would be really tied into that 
with the choices that you made, you would only be able to ever equip one piece of equipment in each slot, and it would be stuck there forever. So the idea that um, even if these choices were not gameplay-based, they would be permanence-based, or not um, not narrative-based, there would be some permanence based on uh, some of these choices that you made as you played and as you developed your character, which actually sounds kind of interesting to me, and that in the end that didn't happen at all somehow, even though they announced it would happen in the game. And they specifically said that this mode, in its original form, was going to exist because it was based on a survey of player preferences from earlier Bioshock games. They're like, this was what people wanted in the game. People were telling them they wanted them in the game. And I've not been able to find any explanation for why it was downgraded to essentially a really hard mode where the enemies have extra health and your weapons don't work as well. Well, is this just, you know, Bioshock 1 was a hit as it was, and it costs money to take chances, so, you know, why do it? Yeah, this could be all tied up in the economics of of AAA game development. Um, Another quote was, your choices push you towards specific play styles, and those are choices you're going to need to commit to. Once you walk down a path, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to change course. Did you feel like that was played out at all in the game? Is this referring to 1999 mode yes, in sorry. particular? Yeah, or? the 1999 mode in particular. Uh, Although it sounded like he had kind of grand aspirations to apply this to the game in general to some degree. No, I didn't I didn't actually play 1999 mode. I just yeah. played the regular game. Yeah, I attempted it and it just... It was so hard it was annoying and there was nothing extra there for me. But some well, people loved it. Yeah, well, I felt the gameplay just in general wasn't as engaging as the original Bioshock. There were a lot of just kill rooms where you ran into a room and just waited for people to run at you and mm-hmm. you just shot them and then moved on to the next room where the same thing happened. And Bioshock 1 was a lot more, you know, creeping through a dark place and things would jump out at you and, yeah. you know, that kind of survival, which was more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So I, and, and a lot of times hard modes and shooting games just mean your guns do less damage and the enemies do more damage and that isn't always a rewarding experience. Yeah, it's mathematical more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a as a contrast between their what little bit we can glean about development processes from the original Bioshock to Bioshock Infinite, it sounded like in the first one they wished they had more player feedback to build on, and then by the time they got to Bioshock Infinite, they were actively ignoring the player feedback that they had when they, in theory, had six years, or you know, I don't know how long they were working on Bioshock Infinite, but they had multiple years where they could have um, dipped into this community of support that they developed with a, a critical and financial success and um i don't want to say you should you know play test everything or or focus group everything within an inch of its life but i think bioshock infinite could have been a more fulfilling experience if perhaps they'd listened to at least providing options for the players who wanted to play it that way yeah i was disappointed that there was no real morality or any type of philosophical impact as far as the the procedures of the the game went you mm-hmm. know yeah it definitely did not have that procedural rhetoric and even the narrative didn't seem to gel with itself you know there was this you know like i said a flying city of racists and then there was all this it kind of segued into what multi-dimensional reality and mm-hmm. which sure that's cool i guess but what that have <laughs> to do with you know everything i was playing before i i don't know yeah, it kind of came out of left field toward the end. And so you mentioned the Bioshock collection earlier that came out recently, and it's a slightly updated 
mix of I think all three Bioshock games, one, two, and Infinite. And so by comparison, the original Bioshock still has a 96 on Metacritic, and I think Bioshock Infinite and Bioshock 2 are both pretty highly regarded. Also, maybe not quite that well, but I think they're in the 90s. Whereas the collection as a whole has an 84 on on Metacritic, <laughs> which I find fascinating. And that's, you know, the polished up package with slightly better graphics and director's commentary and all of the downloadable content that was released later, which I think was mostly pretty highly regarded. And so what what's the difference between then and now? Is it... I don't know. I don't know that I have a conclusion here, but I I find it an interesting comparison between the two. Yeah. No, I I was thinking more about the original Bioshock and how I would have changed the choices mm-hmm. in that game. Because I feel like the the choice that most of us make on a more frequent basis with regard to do we follow Ayn Rand's viewpoint or not is do we give away what we currently have, not do we steal what other yeah. people have although she had a lot to say about taxes <laughs> anyway <laughs> but but that's not something that you know we as individuals can often sway but what if, what if the game started right and maybe maybe you start with all of your powers mm-hmm. maybe you turn the whole learning curve on its head and oh. you you somehow start with all your powers and so you feel this sense of ownership of them and, and feel really powerful. And maybe throughout the game you face these choices of giving away those powers to people who request them, right? And then you then you can't use those powers anymore. They're just they're gone. Oh, I like this. And maybe the people who request those powers from you, maybe they go use them for good things, maybe they just disappear, maybe they come back and use them against you. Hmm. Right? Because you know, I, I feel like those are the arguments that people make sometimes against giving to the homeless or giving to charity, right? Well, they're just going to go use it for no good purpose, or uh, maybe they will actually use it for what I want the money to be used for. Who knows? Right? I feel like this this is our second or third episode where you've come up with a solid foundation for a game idea <laughs> in the discussion. <laughs> but and and I and I just feel like. That's something that you could, you know, adjust course on as you go through the game where, oh my God, do I really have to give away this power too? Can I really afford to give away one more thing to mm-hmm. some stranger? And I don't know, just just uh just play through in your mind space what what that would have been like as a as a Bioshock game. Yeah. That focus group would have been different. <laughs> yeah, it would have been this is gonna be a real failure, <laughs> Ken. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And 2007 anyway. was was a different era in gaming as far as indie games. Maybe that could be more successful today. Maybe. maybe. Um, I interrupted your wrap up. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. It was, it was. I'm glad you did. And so I keep thinking over and over about like that early focus group, and like they made some changes based on that. But I feel like one focus group, well, focus group in general, but one user feedback session of any kind is not enough for any product let alone something at, of the magnitude of and with such varied experiences in it as a triple a level um, video game development process and that quote kind of haunts me a little bit of like we didn't have the data to tell them they were wrong even though they were pretty confident that um, that would have been an interesting choice to make in the game development and it makes me think a lot about the utility of testing proactively and trying to get ahead of the game a little bit in that and it gives me a you know I, I don't work at that scale thankfully but 
I think there could be similar consequences to not being able to back up decisions or uh, desires for how to craft a product or a service. Well, I think I read somewhere, I guess I'll have to find the title of this book so we can put it in the show notes, but it's good to test frequently with small groups. Yeah. Because you you can do a, a big group of testing right off the bat, but you'll often learn all the useful things there are to learn from the first few testers and the rest are kind of just you wasting time. And by spreading out those small testings, you can make improvements between them for a lot less investment in the user testing. Make it an iterative process and early enough that you can still make the changes. And I think the research I've seen is that if you test with as few as five users, you will find Mm -hmm. um, something like 80% of the major problems in your product. Right. And and you won't find everything, but that's why you do it iteratively. That's why you repeat the process and, and, and fix things. Yeah. Now I want to go play Bioshock 2 because I feel like I need to fill in that gap <laughs> in my experience. And to to tie it all back into earlier episodes, I think part of the team from Bioshock 2 later went on to create Gone Home. Oh, really? Yeah. That they, and I think based out of some of the experiences that they had in the Bioshock 2 development process about integrating narrative into gameplay and all that. Anyway, go back and listen to that episode. We talked about Gone Home earlier Dis- distinct lack of superpowered mutants and gone home however <laughs> yeah wait for the sequel i'm sure it'll be handed off to a different studio and, and be entirely different so you've been listening once again to gamification unlocked i'm chad hayfley i'm brandon carper please give us a rating and review on itunes or your podcast app of choice you can find us on twitter at unlocking games and on the web at unlockinggames.com. Uh, if you have a minute, you can yell at us for spoiling an almost decade-old game or tell us about something uh, that you've played that you thought had an interesting application of morality or if you came away from the procedural rhetoric of a game with any valuable life lessons. Until next time, it's your move. 